Welcome to another episode of Exit Point. Today, we're talking to Amber Forte, who holds the world record for the fastest female in a wingsuit, is a member of the Norwegian National Wingsuit Team, and a top 10 finisher in the International FIA Performance Wingsuit Competition. Laurent, what do we want to discuss with her today? Well, we want to talk to Amber about her flying progression, her thoughts on training in the wingsuit tunnel for skydiving and base, and the emotional and physical challenges that come from recovering from injury. We'll also dive into what it's like to have a romantic relationship with her jumping and competition partner. Well, I'm stoked to get going with her. Let's uh, get her on the track. You know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I dealt with... uh, like really severe Crohn's disease and was dealing with chronic pain for a long time. And a lot of that was uh, during when I was most active in base jumping. And so I can really sympathize with uh, or empathize with the struggle that it is to like the urge to charge and the the weight of having to stay at home and nurture yourself and take care of, uh, you know, healing. I think that uh, that's probably something that you've been dealing with a lot lately, probably less than than the last few years, but uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your accident and what it's been like for you as a professional athlete and coach and someone who highly relies on their body for their well-being, um, what your experience has been like. Uh, well... I think everyone can relate to that time when you had that like perfect body, <laughs> wasn't injured, didn't have uh, inflammations and problems. And for me, that kind of ended when I was around 21. I had a knee injury. And after that, uh, my life came quite focused around dealing with the injury and learning how to live and keeping it in control. And uh I think in a way, like I never really accepted that I was injured and I just kind of continued on going and I pushed my body a lot. Um, and then when I moved to Norway in 2016, like stuff started really happening for me and I I started to have a lot of opportunities and, and feel like I was part of something that was very meaningful to me. And, and I guess I was really excited and I just couldn't say no to anything. And I got to a point where my knee was really painful and I was pushing myself a lot and I guess uh, quite out of balance in a way. Happy but also quite quite stressed and and then in 2019 I had uh, a big injury where I broke my back and my femur. And after that I think I I remember actually feeling like when I was in the hospital that in a way uh, like in a way actually the injury was nice in a weird way because it actually made me made me stop and reflect on what I've been doing and how I'd ended up here and if I really wanted to continue or like what direction I wanted to go from here and I think uh, anyone that's been through like a long period of rehabilitation or like had the chance to ask themselves those questions if if it is what you really want to continue doing you really have to dig deep in yourself and and really know why you're doing it because a lot of the time it feels like you're not going to be able to do it you're not going to make it and especially for someone like myself that's quite competitive I I hate the idea of failing at something I I can't bear it Um, 
so I knew that I knew that I couldn't stop what I was doing because I really enjoy the activity that I have chosen to do. Uh, but I knew that I had to move forwards and figure out a way to to continue in a healthy way and not just destroy my body into the future. Um, I mean, I've been very fortunate to, to actually be injured in a place like Norway. And when I was injured, I was part of the Norwegian national team. So I received a lot of help from uh, physiotherapists, uh, psychologists, um, the Olympic Center in Oslo. And they gave me a lot of guidance and, and support and everybody really believed in me. It wasn't a lot of doubt from people that were helping me. Uh, and I was able to to center my life for almost two years, just purely around my recovery. Um, I never had to rush to start working again. Um, and I, yeah, it felt like I was able to be quite selfish and just focus on me and then gradually bring in new elements. And, and now to the point today where I, I, I don't have any of that help anymore. And, and that feels quite okay. Man, that's got to be quite a different experience for most people where they, uh, you know, get injured in parachute sports and go to their doctors who tell them, you'll never do this again. And why are you even doing this? Versus uh, it seems like uh, when you, you know, have an injury like this and you're surrounded by, you know, people who are used to dealing with uh, rehabilitating extreme sports people, um, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, how, how do we get you back to doing what you love? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's um, a bit of the Norwegian approach in a way. Uh, a lot of Norwegians, are, um, I feel like the the culture here is very much focused on doing what you love. And a lot of people are very involved in sports clubs. And, and a lot of direction for young people and adults is how is to be part of a club, to be part of an activity or a sport and connect with other people by doing that. And... Although I have felt along the way like some judgment towards what I do, and, and many people have told me that I should just stop because it's dangerous, um, the, the vast majority of the help I've received has been very much focused on how do we get you to do what you do again. Um, and uh, that's been a very positive impact for me or in influence. So focusing on the, you know, you should stop, um, and going back to what you had said about your reasons for uh, jumping, changing, um, perhaps, uh, you know, through some, um, you know, thought during your, uh, during your injury, uh, have your reasons for doing this uh, changed uh, from like when you began and you were going full out to after post-injury? Yeah, well... I wouldn't say necessarily my reasons for doing it have changed, but I think that my it's like my understanding of myself has improved a lot. Uh, I I've always liked flying because I love the feeling of flying, and that's both tunnel flying and skydiving, and then when it goes into base jumping, it's I feel as a a bit of another element to it in a sense because of the the, the risk that's involved um, but I've always found great joy in uh, approaching a scary task um, and analyzing it as well as possible and, and doing it as safe as possible and afterwards feeling that I've achieved something um, 
I think it's it's easy to to sit here now and say that my approach to air sport has changed and has become much more healthy. But then to look at it in a very honest way, uh, it's it's easy to say that as a more experienced person now with much more resources behind me. Uh, in the beginning, I had this sense of that I needed to give everything in order to get somewhere. Um, and now I feel like I can relax a little bit in that I, I'm, I'm making it work. It is my job and I have proven to myself that I can do this successfully. And I think in that also comes a level of security uh, in myself that I, I can relax a little bit and not have to push myself into, I guess, uh, things that I don't necessarily feel comfortable or willing to do. I'm wondering because you talked about joy and you talked about the pleasure that it brings you, but then you also said that you're a very competitive person. I'm wondering how that balance works for you. And are you aware of it? Like I'm acting under my desire to win right now, or my desire to have this sense of achievement, or I'm doing this because I feel good from it. Is, is that something that uh, is at the forefront of your self-awareness or do they overlap? How does that work for you? I think that that's maybe one of the things that's changed the most since before and after my injury. Um, before I was uh, almost like I, I had to do things because if I didn't, I just I felt like I was failing. But now I feel that I, it's almost like I've lost the ability to not listen to that because after experiencing such a heavy trauma and and going through so much pain to get to where I am today, it's like uh, everything in my body stops me from doing something if I'm not comfortable with it. I, I just physically can't do things that I don't feel comfortable with anymore. And I, I get frustrated because I feel like it holds me back, but then I also feel very thankful that I have gained control over that uh, competitive side of myself. Um, but I think that in the last two years, one of the biggest lessons uh, for me has been uh, training towards the world championships. And that was something I was working on before my injury. And then when the injury happened, it was actually 10 days before we were going to go to the world championships. And I remember just laying in hospital and feeling extremely disappointed and frustrated with myself that I had kind of thrown away my opportunity to to compete there and then uh, but at the same time it gave me all the motivation and drive that I needed to get through my re recovery and and really like that motivation drove me through every day of sitting there for hours doing repetitive exercises and not being able to hang out with my friends and kind of just going into this like solo period of intense focus and motivation um, and I think that without that drive I would not have done as good a job as I have been able to with my recovery. Can you give us some insights into your mentality during that recovery? You know uh, from what you're saying you started out very much the same as a lot of people in our community where we're you know, kind of ignoring the fact that uh, we're injured because we don't want to be imperfect. You know, we don't want to believe that uh, we are less than the person that we started out to be. And uh, then you go through serious injury. And from 
my outside perspective, just looking at your social media, you were, you know, pretty upbeat about it almost right away. Um, was that actually the case? And what was the, like, what was your mentality, um, through reconciling that injury and then moving forward to, you know, trying to rehabilitate yourself in a healthy and happy way? Uh, well, I remember deciding quite quickly, like how I was going to approach the injury. Um, when I was laying on the ground, very injured in the beginning, it took an hour and a half for the help to get to me. And I was laying there in a lot of pain, really cold. And I had to really like dig deep in myself to stay calm and relaxed and, and not go into panic. And I remember that hour and a half, my mind was just like constantly searching for like how I was going to deal with the situation, how I was going to approach it or where, you know, where I was going to get from this. And I remember, <laughs> it's a bit funny, but I remember when they gave me the pain medication, a very strong pain medication, I almost like went into this like uh, other world. It was like I, I left my body for a moment and all of a sudden I, I felt uh, almost like this feeling of like bliss, uh, extremely content. And actually I started to get very excited about the situation. Um Sounds a bit strange, but I, I remember realizing in my head that if I could do this really well, it would just be a really epic story. <laughs> and and that was like the only way that I could really find hope in the situation or find some strength or something to hold on to. And I remember I, I, Espen has told me that I got really excited. Uh, I was like, oh my God, I've realized what I'm going to do. Like this is, imagine the presentation I'm going to be able to hold about this. Uh, when I when I do a good job of my recovery, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share the whole story on social media, and I'm gonna try and like do this the best I can, and, and prove to myself and other people that it's possible, and wow. and that really became like my my mantra through the whole thing in a sense, like that. Uh, I mean, it came to a point eventually after several years of sharing your entire life on social media and really like opening everything up, where I. I decided it was time to like pull myself back and take my personal life back. But um, really like the idea of um, proving to myself and others that I could do it in the hope that I would be able to inspire others or, and myself that, that it was possible to come back from something like this. Um, yeah, that's a really quick transition from uh, victim to survivor. Um, yeah, well done. Well, I think it's it's easy to to make the story sound very like black and white today, um, but it definitely wasn't like I just chose that decision and then was just uh, singing and dancing afterwards. I, I definitely had like long periods where it was um, it was tough to to see it that way, but um, it's uh, it's really a choice a lot of the time how you see a situation. And sometimes it's really hard to choose the more positive one, but uh, the more you practice, I think the easier that becomes. Do you mind sharing what some of those darker days looked and felt like for you? Um, yeah, I think like one period I remember the most was uh, at the point where people forgot that I was injured. It was like the initial shock was over. I was um, 
I was able to walk like almost without crutches. I could cook for myself. I was like, yeah, you know, I appeared not so injured anymore, but actually I was still in quite a lot of pain and and feeling quite lonely. And um, at that point I started to feel that people didn't really want to hear the negatives about it anymore. They wanted me to move on and and be positive. And uh, I remember I took this choice where I said I was going to just not talk about negative stuff for a couple of weeks to give everybody around me a break and just like hold it inside. And uh, everybody else just thought that I was having an awesome time. But inside, I was uh, kind of like this big black hole. And uh, I was walking around for several weeks, just smiling and pretending everything was fine. And and I, I never felt so alone, actually, in my whole life. I, I felt so lonely and sad and and um, disabled. Um, Uh, I don't know, like, I guess not everybody has experienced something like that, but it's like this feeling where there just is really no hope. It's like, uh, I'm not really gonna, I'm not gonna get back from this. There is nothing today that I want to do. There's nothing tomorrow that I want to do. And uh, no one gives a shit. Um, And that can be quite heavy to deal with. And uh, really the only way I came out with it was uh, to actually just, eventually I broke and I told Espen, how I felt and kind of went into like panic and and he was quite shocked obviously because he just thought I was having a great time and uh, then we talked about it a lot and we kind of reconnected and realized that uh, that was not the right direction. <laughs> Communication is always better. Very important. It's, it seems like uh, with major injuries like this, we go through like a similar um, process of loss that we would when we like lose somebody, you know, the, the stages. Um, and, uh, it sounds like, uh, from what we're hearing, like you went through a lot of those stages, um, you know, kind of on your own. Yeah, I think for me, it was, uh, it was like, I lost my body. That was kind of how it was experienced. I felt like I, I felt like I'd been so bad to myself. I was like looking at my body just swollen and covered in scars and unable to do what I wanted it to. And just thinking back to when I was 21 with this perfect body ready for anything and just ready to be used for any activity. And if treated well, it would last for a long time. And I just felt like uh, I remember just thinking, what have I done? how have I done this to myself? Like I just destroyed myself. And, and that really is a loss. Like I was experienced as a deep loss and it still is today. Like some mornings I wake up and I I have this like sinking feeling in my stomach where I feel like this deep regret of, of my choices. And, and I have to constantly just accept the choices I've made and move forwards and, and try to make better ones. (laughs) Yeah, can you help us uh, a little bit uh, on that front? Because uh, I feel like our generation of jumper has uh, seen quite a lot and been through quite a lot that makes us, um, you know, look at jumping in a more sustainable way. And previous to that, I can definitely uh, look at my mentality and say, like, well, I, I thought that uh, I was invincible, and you know, I had never really looked at major injury in the way that I had after seeing people get injured. Um, and, uh, maybe the, the question that, that comes out uh, to the forefront for me, for you is, uh, what, 
what advice do you have for people that haven't gone through this, uh, who are, you know, jumping in, uh, maybe a slightly unsustainable way. And, um, do you believe maybe we can like debunk this one? Do you believe that a, a full recovery, that quote unquote full recovery that everyone talks about when they like justify their unsustainable actions of like, Oh no, it's no big deal. Uh, is, is something, is that possible? Or is that a lie that we're telling ourselves? I didn't hear the last part of your sentence. The last thing you said, the full recovery will something. Yeah. Is, is a full recovery, like a lie that we tell ourselves in order to just push through unsustainable action, you know, because you hear that quite often in our community, like, you know, Oh, it's no big deal. That person's going to make a full recovery. And, you know, that's always usually said by somebody that is still jumping as hard as that person, um, and not dealing with the injury itself. Like, you know, just kind of brushing it off and minimizing it as, oh, that's not a big loss. Like they'll make a full recovery. It's just, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Well, there is some truth to it because uh, humans uh, seem to be really good at adjusting to a new, new versions of themselves. Like I know that, uh, I mean, I have adjusted to have metal in my spine and I used to be super flexible and now I'm not, but that's normal now. Um, so a full recovery in that sense, there is some truth into it. Um, when people ask me if I'm fully recovered now, I, I laugh a little bit and it's, it's just as good as it's going to get, or maybe it will get a bit better or it will go up and down. But, um, at the same time, I start to realize that everyone is also just kind of getting old <laughs> and we all have problems. I'm not, uh, I'm not alone. And I remember it was almost quite shocking in the beginning how I realized that nobody really cared about me as much as I kind of wanted them to. Uh, and it's not that they don't care about me. It's just that everybody has their own stuff going on. Um, like Laurent, you just said that you struggled when you were young with a sickness. Um, Matt, I'm sure that you have some injuries in your body. or Maybe you're one of those lucky people that doesn't have anything. Um, uh, Espen has injuries in his body. Almost everybody I meet that's uh, getting to late 20s and above, they have some kind of pain. Um, and we never know how the other person's pain feels. So we can't relate it to our own. Um, but uh, I, I guess it's just part of getting old. But the, the, the part that is uh, unique to our sport, especially, I mean, like base jumping for me is, uh, I'm worried about dying in base jumping. And I'm worried about getting injured in skydiving. Um, and I really don't want to die because I want to live out my life and I have a lot of cool stuff that I really want to do and I have amazing people that I like spending time with. And I don't want to get injured because that's just going to make my life quality less. Um, I, I have been thinking a lot about how I can teach people the lessons of me being injured. Like how can I help other people not do what I've done? Because it's it's been really frustrating. But I, I, I don't know. It's difficult because the best lessons are the ones that we teach ourselves. Mm. It's like uh, someone that smokes cigarettes every day. They're not going to quit unless they actually want to. You can't, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. And uh, I think that sometimes the, the best way to teach a lesson is just to lead by example. 
um, and and do things in the way that you really believe and and just try to influence by being you. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people would get annoyed if you go to them on an exit point or on a skydive and just start telling them that you shouldn't be doing what you're about to do. Uh, obviously, there's like diplomatic ways to approach things, but um, I feel the people that have inspired me the most in, in the sport are people who are very safe about what they do and they're very secure in their belief and they just do what they believe. And by them doing that, I'm often asking questions or going to them for guidance and help. But if somebody starts telling me what I should and shouldn't do, uh, then I get quite defensive. I wish I didn't because I could probably learn more if I didn't. But uh, we have uh, humans, we have this defense mechanism in us. And uh, I mean, I think if we can, if we can all work to turn that off and rather just be open to learn and listen to everything, uh, then we will all learn more. But I mean, ultimately, we just need to learn from each other. We just need to learn and, and support each other and develop as a, as a group. And if that means that some people are going to get injured to teach that lesson, then perhaps that's good. Yeah, I guess my hope is that uh, fewer of us have to learn the hard lesson and only a couple of us do. And then the rest of us can, you know, just kind of pick up the pieces. Laurent, uh, you wanted to move on to uh, training at this point, right? I do. And um, I think this is a, a, a nice way to segue into uh, where you are now, because uh, I reached out to you recently uh, because you had posted a video or Espen had posted a video of you doing a two-way from a low end. And to be quite honest, I think it is uh, one of the most refined two-way base jumps I have ever seen. Uh, you guys are so in sync. It's choreographed uh you're so in tune with each other with the jump itself uh from a to z it's it's beautiful it's a dance and um so for one congratulations it's a, a thing of beauty so maybe we could talk a little bit about how you get there because you guys have spent a lot of time in the sky you spent a lot of time on the edge of the cliff and now you've been spending a lot of time in the wingsuit tunnel since I was just at the tunnel, maybe we could start with the tunnel because I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about that. I, for my, for one, uh, had, was very skeptical at the beginning. When I first went there, they didn't have a various of angles. I really doubted that it was going to have any real application to what we were doing in the sky. Definitely not in base jumping. And as it's evolved to, to incorporate more speed and angle um, and more people are spending more and more time in it, we're seeing some incredible things happen and in very much like in the free fly world, uh, we're seeing now that there are wingsuiters who train in the tunnel and then there's wingsuiters that don't. And, uh, there's really no, there's no way that you can compete with the, the amount of repetition and refinement that happens in the tunnel. So please tell us a little bit about your training in the tunnel. Uh, firstly, thank you for your, uh, kind words about Espen and I's uh, video. We've been um, yeah, working a lot on refining the moves. And I mean, we're very fortunate that we have lawn, so uh, it's almost like a drop zone. Uh, so we go to the tunnel and we come back here and we get to do lots of jumps and, and refine things, which is 
Yeah, amazing. Um, well, I think for me personally, I am I'm quite a tunnel flyer. <laughs> That's kind of like my my roots in skydiving in a sense. Um, so when the wingsuit tunnel came, I was really excited because I have always felt like I. I've almost been like missing a gear in wingsuiting as opposed to free flying where I had the tunnel. Um, I am a person who really enjoys repetition um, and I love doing uh, like small repetitive, almost like a lot of people will call them boring moves, just again and again and again and refining the small details. I think that's almost like my favorite thing to do in flying. So when the wingsuit tunnel came, I must admit initially I was quite skeptical to it. Um, I didn't actually want it to be as good as it was because I knew it was going to cost me a lot of money. Um, I, initially I was like, no, no, it's not going to be, I'm not sure about that. Uh, and then I went and I was like, oh, fuck, it is. <laughs> oh, fuck. There goes my wallet. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Um uh the wingsuit tunnel is uh, it's an amazing tool it is a place where you can refine moves uh you can have help from someone uh, watching you from the outside and and spend many many hours working on stuff that usually you get one skydive or one base jump to work on um i think uh the thing that's held me back a little bit in the tunnel is the fact that it is uh, it can be quite dangerous. Um, in a vertical tunnel, the tunnel actually uh, diffuses at the top. So if you crash or lose control, you fall into almost like a soft air space. Uh, but in the wingsuit tunnel, it's quite important to take it quite seriously because if something goes wrong, you, you can crash quite hard. Um, and oh, I, that's I some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyone that's been there will, will tell you they've experienced that. Um, but I really believe it's possible to progress in the tunnel without it being dangerous. Uh, but it comes down to the individual. It comes down to how you approach it and, and how almost like your mentality with the tunnel. Um, I, I started flying quite soon after I broke my back and I wasn't actually supposed to, but I felt like... I wanted to I wanted to fly and I wanted to figure out how to do it safely in the tunnel. Um, and I progressed, you can say, very slowly. I, I took it really, really easy. I flew on low wind speeds and I didn't do a lot of like crazy moves like barrel rolls and things for a very long time. Um, and I just was, the uh, whole time, I just kept reminding myself, I'm just going to work on all the fine details and I'm not going to move forwards until I do things perfectly. And I was really hard on myself. Um, I think almost like my mentality allowed me to do this because I'd been so used to just sitting in the living room, lifting my leg up a centimeter and putting it like down a hundred times every day. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it wasn't too boring. Um, but what I see with a lot of people that come to the tunnel is, uh, maybe they travel from the States and they're going to fly four hours in just over a week or something. They want to fly as much as possible. And a lot of people are thinking qu uh, quantity. They want to fly a lot. They want to get a lot done. Uh, it costs a lot of money, so they have a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, and they end up being quite stressed and quite disappointed. And it, it's um, quite fascinating to be part of that journey with people because it usually starts with they come, they're really excited, they're nervous. They get in there and they're like, wow, this is amazing. And then they get off the cables and then it's like, 
whoa, this is scary. Oh, this is dangerous. Oh, fuck. And they start to get a bit frustrated with themselves because they're not, they're realizing that they're maybe not going to get as far as they were dreaming of. Um, and it's funny because there's almost like people have this relation to barrel rolls. It's all about barrel rolls. <laughs> They, they go to the tunnel and they're like, if I can just leave here and I've done a barrel roll, I'll be happy. And Interesting. Yeah, it's the barrel roll. Okay. And, um, and I, I try to explain to people that a barrel roll is just two transitions. And if you can do transitions perfectly, then you won't even need to learn a barrel roll because you'll just be able to do transition, transition, and then just do it faster and faster. Um, and that's kind of like my, my mentality around the training in the tunnel is that um we don't rush anything we work on quality not quantity like we often ask they tell people to fly less than they want to and, and rather visualize things walk things really well outside of the tunnel um and and really like put the effort in outside where it's safe and it's free and then when you go in the tunnel um be be ready to just just take it easy and and constantly remind yourself that if you let let go and and go a bit crazy then it's quick that that wall is is coming and that's that's the main thing that we want to avoid can you give us an idea of some of the fine details that you're working on well i think like the the main the main thing and the first thing that i get people to to focus on is to look at me uh, to turn their head sideways and be able to look at me. And I don't mean like turn the head sideways with the with the head up, but like having the head sideways. So the head is directly in the direction of flight. And it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, they feel like they lose balance. They start flying towards me or away from me. Um, but the, the reason that I want people to fly and look at me the whole time uh, it, well, first of all, I'm the one that's giving the information. So if they look at me, they're going to get more information. And secondly, we always want to look at people we fly with. Um, then moving on from there, like I, I teach people to fly with their shoulders. So I have a, a huge focus on relaxing the arms, keeping the arms like straight and long and kind of elegant fly with the shoulders so the shoulders become very much like the handlebars or the steering wheel uh, and just try and get the rest of the body almost to be like a streamer like very elegant and long and just use the shoulders as the control to go up and down left right or wherever you want to go in the tunnel um, and then from there start to moving into transitions um, and going through like all the kind of trying to break things down as much as possible so that you you do every step towards going from your belly to your back without actually doing it so that when you eventually do it you you're able to do it so slowly that you could almost stop any at any point um, and it can take a long time like I, I, I see that to be so focused on perfection can take a little bit longer to get there. But when you get there, I really believe that uh, you, you end up having a much nicer transition, for example. Yeah, focus on fundamentals. That was uh, how I learned how to free fly in the tunnel as well. It sounds like you're taking kind of the same approach to wingsuiting in the tunnel as well. There's an enormous amount of overlap from what's going on in the vertical tunnel to uh, 
the wingsuit tunnel. And when you're talking about slowing the speed down and taking time to work on your fundamentals, I mean, we have so many amazing, the best vertical tunnel flyers to emulate their process and the way that they're teaching. And it's putting the speed way down and really creating lift with your body and making all those angles into a wing. You, we talked a little bit about this or, or, or you alluded a little bit to about people being disappointed. And uh, we had, we had a conversation with our friend Jeff recently. And uh, he said that uh, if I, hopefully I can co- quote him correctly here, fly the pilot that you are not the one you want to be. And, uh, you know, in free flight, you know, that can have life and death uh, repercussions flying like the pilot you want to be. But in the tunnel, while it is dangerous, is a little bit safer or quite a bit safer, but your ego gets damaged, you know, like you come to the tunnel with this idea of, you know, you're going to do these really sweet pancakes and you're going to get some sick footy for your Instagram and then all of a sudden you're banging against the walls and uh, and you're, you know, basically slapped around with the realization that you're not the pilot you think you are. Um, I had the chance of being there recently. I think it was last week. Yeah. Um, and it was very quiet. And uh, I spent a lot of time speaking with uh, Patrick, who's the head instructor there. And uh, he shared a lot of stories about guys who think they're the shit. And they come to the tunnel and they know, they know, they know, they know, and they spend hours flittered away repeating the same mistakes because they're unable to shed their ego of who they think they should be. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and explain like maybe some of the processes that you've experienced and how people can maybe step away from their ego a little bit and how that's going to be a jump the big jump forward for them and their skills. It's funny hearing you talk about it because it almost sounds like uh, someone going on like an ayahuasca retreat or something. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. just come to the sure, tunnel that happens, instead. That happens just as well. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely had that smack um, down. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't tried it, but uh, it's uh, it's a little bit like you come to the tunnel and um, you have all these ideas of what you're gonna be and achieve and who you are, and then all of a sudden you're uh, you're getting a bit of a smack in the face from your ego. Um, I think like it's important for people. It's important to remember that just because you have flown a wingsuit from an aeroplane or maybe you've done a lot of wingsuit base jumps, flying a wingsuit in the tunnel is just not the same. Um, the only similarity really in the beginning is that you're in a wingsuit, like you're wearing the same costume. Um, but it's uh, the, the most important thing is just to learn how to be safe in the tunnel. And it's very unfamiliar. It's like, uh, you know, like when we stand up from a chair, we're so used to putting our hands on the, on the armrests to get ourselves up or kind of lean, lean forwards like this. But in the tunnel, uh, we have to do the opposite. It's like, you want to move forwards, you lean backwards. You want to go forwards, you lean, uh, you lean forward, uh, forwards, oh, sorry, backwards. I'm getting confused. Um, we got it. Yeah. So what you need to learn, what, what you need to learn in the beginning in the tunnel to be safe is is backwards from what's natural to us 
as humans in everyday life. Um, and it's, it's a really tricky, it's a tricky situation, but I think that um, me, me, I can only speak on behalf of myself and a little bit Aspen because we work a lot together on this. Um, we, we really try and get to know our students like try to know them on a personal level. And every every time we go to the tunnel and we have people there with us, we, we treat it as if we're on a holiday with these people. We are here to experience this together. And the journey that you go on, we go on as a team. And everybody has their own little challenges. You know, like people have expectations of what they want to achieve. Maybe they realize they're not going to achieve it and it goes in a different direction. Or maybe someone uh, is never skydives before, but they have done lots and lots of base jumps with a wingsuit. And this is just really, really weird. And it's really frustrating because they know that they're really good at base jumping. Um, I think that the tunnel is a good ego check. And although it can feel quite uncomfortable, uh, in the long run, having having that check is, is really healthy, I think. And... Uh, in air sports, like we're, we're doing a high-risk activity and uh, the sooner I think we can be keeping our ego in check and being honest about what we can and what we can't, the safer we will be as a community. Can you uh, talk to us about transitioning your skills from the tunnel into the sky and a little bit about what you do to train in the skydiving environment? Um, well... Actually, Esper and I, when we were training up towards the World Championships, we had a period of, I think it was a little over four weeks, where we were training in the mornings in the wingsuit tunnel and then in the afternoon in skydiving. So we flew 30 minutes a day and then we did about four skydives in the afternoon. Um, and we, we had it almost like a routine. So we did three days on, one day off, three days on, one day off. And... When in this period when we were training, we were playing a lot, not with the speed in the tunnel, but a lot with the glide ratio. Uh, so take the glide flatter and flatter and flatter, and then go back to uh, to a more steeper glide um, to to kind of work a little bit with different glide ratios. Can you be specific with those ratios? Can you be specific with those angles? Because I, I know there's people going to listen to this and go like, oh, I want to emulate that in a bit. So what angles have you been working with? So in the beginning in the tunnel, usually people fly on 1.6. Um, we try to take people to 1.7 or even 1.8 as soon as possible so that they can stretch out the suit more and, and fly on like more of an aerodynamic body position. Um, when you start flying with a big suit, uh, we use the Freak. Uh, people usually start with flying on uh, 2.0. Um, we did all of our training for the World Championships at uh, 2.3. Um, we played around with 2.4 and even 2.5 a little bit, uh, but those were never angles that we trained a lot at, and it was purely because of our, tire, our shoulders. Uh, we got really tired. Doing it over a long period with lots of time is not really sustainable on a much flatter glide in the tunnel. And then in skydiving, we tried to emulate this as well as possible. So we always aimed for 2.3 glide. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge to, to take exactly how good you are in the tunnel and put it in skydiving. In all honesty, we never managed to make them the same. Uh, we are still better wingsuiters in the tunnel than we are in skydiving and base jumping. 
Um, and that is something that we are constantly trying to figure out how to how to close the gap. Um, I think that one of the main things that uh, potentially holds us back is that when we fly in the tunnel, we constantly use references inside the building. Um, and it's intimidating to just do pancakes and, and barrel rolls and moves around each other and just completely forget that you're in the tunnel. Um, we we constantly try and focus on that, but you always end up having a quick look at the glass or checking where the edge is. Um, whereas in skydiving and base jumping, you, you just don't have that. Uh, so things end up getting a bit more spread out. The angle starts changing. The speed goes quite low. More things like this happen. Um, I think that it's a huge positive if you have specific people you fly with um like Esper and I have flown a lot for many years together now and we have a very good communication in freefall uh it's like I understand when he's going to do something or, and he can read me as well and that really helps to to progress together but at the same time uh something I felt especially after the world championships when I started flying with other people was like I'd lost the element of surprise and I, since then, have been working to fly with a more variety of people and challenge myself in different ways because if you get good at flying with one person, that's all that you get good at. Um, but I definitely think that it's a really good idea for people to find others who are on a similar skill level and train with that person but never leave completely flying with random people because... Yeah, that's kind of something that keeps you on your on your toes, in a sense. I, I want to ask you something very specific, too, uh, in the application of the tunnel flying to uh, skydiving, because before we were very um, adamant about um, breaking our speed with our knees as opposed to breaking at the shoulders. And um, my experience in the tunnel is that you can be a lot more precise with the shoulders, keeping the legs, hips, hips engaged, uh, and then knees and toes all like keeping powered up in the legs and then adapting speed with the shoulders much more so than with the, the knees and the hips, because when you break at the knees and the hips, you create a lot of lift that you have to push against. How do you feel about that? Is that something that was just a, an observation or are you using the breaking at the knees for the sky and base and shoulders for the tunnel only? Do you have any strong opinions on that? Yeah, this is something that Esper and I have discussed a lot. Um, and for sure, it's something I feel that's changed. The opinion on this has changed a lot since I started wingsuiting. Um, personally, the way that I fly is that I, I constantly have a small bend in my hips and a small bend in my knees. And when I say bend, I don't mean like bent. I mean more like uh, uh, just not completely stretched out. So it's kind of like if you were to stand on the ground in a straight up position, you can like almost hyperextend your knees and press your hips forwards and make everything like hyper extended to the max. Uh, or you can stand and kind of almost be like ready for if someone's going to come and push you or do something to you so you become like a sturdy standing person. That's how I approach like my neutral position in a wingsuit. 
Um, I always want to have my my belly kind of sucked in uh, so that I'm engaging like the internal muscles in my hips and my core. Uh, and I want to try and keep my, my chest as flat as possible. And I don't want it to look like I'm opening my chest. I want just the whole torso to be like a very straight, uh, straight line in a sense. Um, and then all the small movements I am adjusting mainly with my shoulders, like relax them back a little bit to go down, press them forward slightly to go up or left to right with one shoulder into the wind. Um, if I am going to go upwards quite quickly, um, I, I more and more start to use actually where I, I, I bend my hips and almost poke my bum upwards and uh, press my feet downwards into the wind and, and engage the whole suit. It's almost like I engage the whole suit and like like pop everything downwards and lift my bum up. And that's going to bring me up very quickly. And depending on how far away I am from the person that I'm moving over or going down towards, I, I use more and more just actually kind of letting go, almost like sinking forwards and allowing my suit to go on a more steeper angle. And then flatten out and catch myself in that position. Uh, that said, like this kind of technical stuff to just explain on a, with a voice. Yeah. Um, if I was in person now, I would be uh, moving around, showing all these strange positions right. in my body. Um, but then again, like if I was on a jump, for example, and uh, I was coaching someone on how to backfly, and they transition to their back and they start sinking downwards really quickly and I need to get down to them as quickly as possible. Then I'm really just like shutting my arms behind my back, bending my hips, bending my knees, like just trying to make my wingsuit as little as possible so that I can sink down to them. Um, but I would never fly in a formation like that. Um, something that I have seen uh, like quite a few times it's like people are flying over a formation and they've been told like to come down to the group you need to bend your hips and bend your knees and lean forwards and and they kind of just end up being almost like this rock that's just falling downwards um no matter what i do when i'm flying with people or just in general moving around i always want to keep my suit in an aerodynamic position like flying into the wind and feel the the pressure going into the suit and just work with that pre pressure rather than removing it and getting it back again. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's great stuff. <clears throat> um, moving on, like I'm, I'm really impressed with. But the then again, of like I, I, I like to think that we haven't we haven't come to an end yet, and I don't think we ever will. Like. Everything is just ideas uh, that we have and we're constantly trying things out. And then all of a sudden somebody else comes and they're like, oh, I do this with my knees. And we're like, oh, wow. And then you try that and you're like, well, that was really powerful. Um, so I think it's important not to get locked up on like, I do things this way because this is best, but rather think like this is a phase that I'm going through right now and maybe this is going to change soon. I like that a lot. And that's uh, definitely applicable to everything in life. So uh, Matt, you uh, broke up uh, briefly there. Uh, can you come back with? Yes. Yeah. Your uh, internet is while a little we're bit talking broken about, there, bro. Can you can you hear me? Yes. 
So uh, while we're talking about training, you're one of the more intentional trainers, um, you know, people that uh, put in a lot of time and effort into perfecting one of these maneuvers. Uh, can you give us the progression from, you know, a, a maneuver being incepted, you know, like you, you come up with it um, to bringing it from the tunnel to skydiving to then eventually base? Like, what does that, uh, what does that road look like? Well, I think, I think it's quite an individual road. Um, I don't think that there is like a set uh, a set timetable or a schedule to how that's going to happen. I found myself many times kind of like trying to find like uh, rules and like this is the rules and this is the path that we go on, but then all of a sudden somebody else comes along and they don't learn like that. Um, so for me, it's very important to see each person as an individual and understand what they have done beforehand or what's more easy for them. Or, uh, well, uh, let me clarify. I'm just asking for you, like when you come up with like a maneuver that you want to do. Yeah. And, um, then, uh, you know, how, what kind of work do you put in on each level? Uh, what does the progression look like from, uh, you coming up with it in your head to eventually, um, you doing it in the base jumping environment? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, first of all, for me, before I do something in base jumping, it's really important that I'm able to visualize it, that I'm able to, to go through every step of it and understand how I'm going to do it and what it's going to look like before I will throw myself off a mountain and try it. Um, I, I feel like I, so I, a lot of time I feel like I take a bit more time than other people. Um, I often look around me and I see people just going for things and thinking like, oh, how are they doing that? Like, uh, and I look at uh, like the way people approach things. I, and I know I sound a bit critical, but um, a lot of the time I look at uh, men <laughs> in base jumping and, and it, seems like, um, it seems like a lot of them have less fear than me. Uh, but then I just have to remember that I, I just have to do things the way that I want to do them. Um, so anyway, the, I guess the progression for me, if I was going to say, for example, uh, well, right now, for example, I'm, I'm working on learning how to do two seventies. So like flaring up and then doing a two seventy into a line. And so I take a step back from like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to achieve. I would like to do it by myself. I would like to do it with other people. Um, and I'm thinking, Ultimately, I don't have that much experience in base jumping or line flying in base jumping. That's probably the thing that I have the least experience with. Um, flaring is not one of my strong points in wingsuit flying. Um, and I'm not a particularly experienced swooper in skydiving. So uh, there's like three elements of that thing that I would like to do that I don't have a lot of experience in. So uh, then there's kind of like this uh, red blinking light in me telling me that like, you need to really approach this carefully. Um, I've been watching a lot of videos of other people, mainly Aspen, doing it in Luan, for example, because we jump here a lot. Um, I've been practicing the line with just a 90 degree turn and almost like picturing at the top of the flare how it would be to do a 270 if I was to do it. Um, and then practicing like flaring up against the wall. So like flaring next to terrain uh, to kind of get perspective and how that flare would be experienced if I was going to do the 270. 
Um, and then a few days ago, actually, I followed Espen doing a 270 quite out in the open, away from the wall. Um, so I wanted to know that we had a lot of altitude. Um, I wasn't going to end up kind of like diving towards something that I wasn't ready for. Um, and I think that it's going to take me years, maybe even a lifetime, to be able to do that jump that I'm dreaming of. But I'm okay with that. Uh, because why Why do I really want to do it anyway? Because learning it is really cool and fun. Uh, it's not about just making that cool Instagram video. It's about actually being able to do it and understand how to do it and be able to do it with competence and 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 knowledge. Um, so... I don't know, maybe maybe I will be working on this my entire lifetime and I will never do that one jump that I really, really am stoked with and I tick off the box. But it's not about finishing it and moving on to something else. It's just about developing and learning. Um, so for me, that's really important when I'm going to do something in base jumping that I haven't done before, that I break it down as much as possible and just constantly feel like I'm in control. I never want to like go into something closing my eyes and just crossing my fingers. I need to constantly feel in control and I need to constantly have a plan B if it doesn't feel right what I'm about to do. Um, and I mean, like, base jumping is kind of like the pinnacle of it all. Um, but in skydiving, we have a place to practice all these things with just air around us. And then in the tunnel, we have a place to practice and learn all the fine maneuvers. And then ultimately, what it comes down to is your mentality around the activity that you're going to do. For me yeah, personally, it, it sounds like your mentality is uh, what we would call in sports psychology a process orientation versus uh, a goal orientation. In process orientation, uh, we're devoted to like the positive feeling of of what it's like to to do a, a perfect action, you know. And in goal orientation, it's just all about accomplishing whatever the task is, you know. So, you know, one example would be like the you know the samurai who like they're devoted to just one smooth brush, you know, stroke, right. Which like, that's a, that's a process versus like, you know, uh, most of American sports is all about goal orientation. They don't care how you do it. Just put the ball in the net. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting analogy. I haven't heard that before. Makes a lot of sense. Laurent. Yeah. I, I noticed you were a little bit uncomfortable uh, when you felt like you were being critical. And um, th I think that's a real interesting point to, to talk about because I think in air sports, we're all critical, right? Because, well, one of the elements is that uh, we're in this constant state of plausible deniability that we are going to be crashing or we are going to be doing this. So in the process of being critical, we're able to say, well, we're different than them. But I think in your case, um, being a woman, uh, you're able to observe the difference of, uh, you know, the biochemistry that, that sort of rules men a little bit in their decision-making. Do you think that that's something that's general men versus women? Cause you said, you know, again, I'm, I'm drawing up on the, the competitive side of you. Um, I'm just really curious because I see this a lot in Ellen as well, because she is a competitive person, but she seems to be able to stay at her own pace, no matter what the situation is. And 
I don't see that with my male friends, you know, like we're sort of got all of this testosterone driving. We're, we're, we're sort of these pack animals that see what the other person is doing. And we want to be running with the pack. That's, you know, going to take down that, that prey. And I'm wondering uh, from a female perspective, how ridiculous that looks <laughs> on the outside and how apparent is it? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful about like drawing this difference between genders um, because I wish the difference wasn't there. And I feel like a lot of the time by talking about it, we create the difference. Um, there are a lot of women who, who, are, who aren't the stereotype. And there's a lot of men who also aren't the stereotype. Um, but I, I think I ultimately, although I hate to admit it, there is a bit of a difference. And I, I grew up with three older brothers. Uh, all three of them are professional BMXs. Uh, one of them still is. Um, they were seriously impressive humans. I looked up to them a lot. Um, and I just desperately wanted to be one of them. <laughs> I, I used to look at uh, the youngest one of the three and just be like, oh, why couldn't I have just been born when he was born and he could have my place? Um, it was always so frustrating that they were old enough to go out and drink and they were old enough to go on like bike holidays and they were old enough, they were old enough to, to choose what they were doing. Whereas I was still under the control in a sense of my parents. Um, and I always had this like level of resent, but admiration for them. Um, and I think that from a very young age, I, I almost like set myself the task of that I wasn't going to let that limitation stop me. And I was going to be able to also be a sports person or an athlete or whatever it was I wanted to do. I wanted to do it just as successfully as a man would have done. Um, I think that a lot of my life I've had quite a negative uh, connection to that aspect. And it's driven me a lot through anger and frustration um, I've spent many years, uh, especially in the beginning when I was trying to become a tunnel instructor, I was very driven by fear of failure and, and kind of like my annoyance towards the, the men seemed to get it so much easier. Um, but as I, as I get older and I start to have experienced more of life, I start to, first of all, be very happy with the fact that I'm a woman and be quite pleased with who I am. And um, rather than be frustrated with men for it being easier, rather just use the journey that I have to learn as a positive and, and try to learn from men as well as women and, and gain what I can from everybody and, and try not to view it as so much a difference. Um, but I'm definitely a female that spends a lot of time with men and I often feel like I need to just take a step back and just let the guys kind of do their thing with uh, the, the competitiveness and the ego and, the, and then I'll come back in when they've figured it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I get quite uh, overwhelmed by it and especially in the last few years I... I can't. I just can't let myself get drawn into it because it makes me feel it makes me feel like I lose a bit control over what I actually want to do and what I don't want to do. Do you have any strategies for dealing with that? I know this is probably a common thing that a lot of women deal with in the sport. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's one thing for me to deal with it, but sometimes I wonder how it actually feels to be surrounded by so many men in competition because I haven't very many times been surrounded by other women that are doing what I do and are as competitive as I am. Uh, but when I am, <laughs> I can't say it's always comfortable. And and I actually feel like some of the difference between men and women actually comes from women themselves. Um, there's almost like this thing that's like you're if you're the only girl in the in the, the village, or like you're the one that kind of hangs out with the guys, and then all of a sudden this other girl comes and she's younger than you, maybe she is stronger than you, or she's got more potential than you. And there's this um, I have experienced many times throughout my life that I've been pushed to the side uh, because I'm a girl from another girl, not the guys. Um, so I think that a lot of the, the difference between men and women, uh, it's not just to blame men. I think that we can actually blame ourselves for it. And, and I feel that the sooner we can almost like stop having it even as a subject and rather just uh, see everybody as humans rather than uh, differences. Well, if you know, we're, we're going like to go there's... over differences, uh, just one second. Uh, like that's, that's a really interesting point to me. Like I, I find the same thing um, is necessary in order for us to like move forward in education. Um, and so maybe uh, the question better stated is, do you have any strategies with dealing uh, for dealing with a competitive um, group? mindset uh versus like are we going to break it up into genders mm. well i think that my strategy in dealing with that in life in general is to just make my own goals uh accept my own goals and missions that i want to achieve and and don't base them on what somebody else has achieved like sometimes those goals can be like almost unachievable. No one's achieved it. And, and I'm just really believing that I, I will be the one. Or maybe sometimes they'll be really small. And many people have done it. But for me, it's a big goal. And <clears throat> I remember a while back, I was <clears throat> struggling a bit with that. I can't remember where I was, but it was like there were several people there that really looked up to Espen. And we were there together and we were flying together. And I remember feeling like almost invisible because they looked up to him so much. And I understand he's an amazing, amazing guy. I also really look up to him. But I remember feeling like this feeling of like jealousy in me that I felt like they didn't see me. And and the now I'm being very honest, but the, the feeling of that bothered me because I felt like this is ridiculous. I can't be jealous of my boyfriend. Uh, I, I have to fix this because this isn't his fault. This is my fault. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it and, and what I came down to ultimately was that I'm never going to shine next to somebody that I'm trying to copy. I'm always just going to be one step behind them. So the only way for me to shine is to create my own path and to figure out my own goals and my own missions. Uh, and that's, that's what I remind myself. I think every time I feel like, oh, maybe I should do that because he or she is doing that, or maybe I shouldn't be so scared, or come on, Amber, just do it. It's going to be fine. I just have to take a step back and remind myself, like, is this really what you want to do? Um, and, I mean, it's not all about shining, but I quite like that analogy that 
Yeah. Um, we, we have to operate as individuals. And if you just try and copy someone else or achieve what someone else is wanting to achieve, then, then you just kind of get lost in the mist. Beautiful insight. You know, that leads us right into a question that we have for you about being part of a, you know, a power wingsuiting couple is that, uh, I mean, what you're just talking about now is a key ingredient, but what are some other ingredients that make it a successful couple that's engaged in, in these activities? I think um, every relationship has its ups and downs, and I'm not going to sit here and say that ours is absolutely perfect, but um, we have a a very good relationship, and I'm very happy with Espen, and I really enjoy what we do together. I feel very fortunate that we, we have the chance to do that. Um, I think that something that we talk a lot about and something that we almost like we have a rule in our relationship is that we are together, but we are single. Um, and I, mean, I don't mean like we have an open relationship or something like this, but uh, it's more like we are in a relationship together, but we operate like single people in that if Espen wants to do something, he goes and does that. And if I want to do something, I do that. And we support each other all the time in living the lives that we want to live as well as the lives together. Um, and then through kind of having that as a basis for a relationship, I think it, it makes you feel like you really, there's a lot of care in the partnership. Like I truly feel like Espen cares for me and he wants what's best for me. Um, and therefore, when when I misunderstand something that he does or we get frustrated because a jump didn't go to plan or, I don't know, like I've been emptying the dishwasher way too much recently, I, I, can, <laughs> I can lean back and just trust that, um, trust that he's trying his best and he wants what's best for me and he cares a lot for me. Is your communication in flying better than it is on the ground? Mm, it's getting better and better everywhere i would say i mean we've been together for six years now and we've done a lot together we've spent almost that six years constantly together um and it just is constantly getting better and better like our ability to communicate understand each other give each other the space we need uh feel that we're able to be the people in free fall base jumping skydiving tunnel flying that we, we need to be like espen needs different stuff to what i need and uh, we ha we can't give each other those things unless we understand what they are. And that takes a lot of time to understand. Uh, so I think that I wouldn't say like we're better in free fall than on the ground. I think everything is, um, it's all just life. Like uh, the fact that you're in free fall doesn't really make much of a difference because we can still get angry with each other in free fall. That's happened. That's <laughs> so I've got a follow up question, all... but Matt, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, yeah I got, a, I got a, a quick question. Do you all, um compartmentalize your different relationships like are you a a different partnership in the sky than you are romantically on the ground or do they intermingle mm, i actually feel like we're quite the same everywhere uh, but obviously like when we're alone we're different when you're around other people you you can't always be so relaxed as you are when you're together but i think that um Generally, we're, we're pretty the same with each other all the time. Um, when we're working, sometimes we have to be a little bit more professional. It's like we're not like walking around kissing each other all the time. <laughs> um, 
uh, and then sometimes like uh, if you hike a big mountain and you do uh, you do a base jump together and it doesn't go to plan then sometimes you can get a bit frustrated with each other but it doesn't ever feel like uh, I don't really feel like we have different different hats in a way it's just um, it all just feels like a big journey it's like uh, we're just on this mission together and it just happens that we have really similar goals and uh, it's really fun to to be on that journey together you know there's one element that I've touched on a few times uh, that has been a challenge for Ellen and I and that's when the base jumps get real technical because it becomes a little bit distracting uh, when there's the danger is high and the the risks are are plentiful you know thinking about the other and making sure that they're seeing what you're seeing and uh, that can become delicate and and uh, distracting we sort of uh, moved away uh, from doing those kind of jumps together uh, do you have is that something that you guys have communicated something that you've experienced and um, yeah please share um, I think that it comes to a point when if you do something that starts to push your limits in terms of safety, that you you start to think more about yourself than the other person. Now, I can only speak for myself. Espen is a lot more experienced in base jumping than me, so I, I feel often that he has a lot more um, overview or ability to kind of be more chill and see more than me. Like my... the what I can in base jumping is less than what Espen can. So I'm much more quick to feel stressed or feel like I'm pushing myself. Um, we haven't discussed uh, like stopping at a certain limit. I, I, that in a way it feels quite unnatural. Like I, I'm just, I'm personally very excited to just kind of progress together in, into that and just constantly try and do things in a safe way. But I see that when Espen goes, for example, and he does a solo, um from a big mountain like what he does is something that is quite far away from what i feel comfortable doing um i i actually i don't worry so much about him i i i trust him a lot and i really trust his judgment um so it's it's strange. So I don't know. Maybe it's just become so normal to me that we base jump together that I don't walk around worrying too much about something happening to one of us. Um, but at the same time, like if I do sit down and start thinking about it, like there has been times where I'm like I'm randomly in the shower and I just think about oh my god, what would happen if Espen was to crash on a base jump? And it's it's a horrible feeling. It's awful. I I can't bear thinking about it. It makes me, you know, it's just one big question mark. Um, I I don't want to forget about that, but then at the same time, I don't feel like it does me any good to think about it. So I I think I on on one hand I I forget about it, and on another hand I, I take it very seriously, but in a very pragmatic way where I try to remove emotion. So my question was really about exit point behavior and uh, experience, and you brought it back to your to real life, and then back to the exit point again. Um, so it sounds like maybe you guys haven't been to an exit point together where it's real technical, and uh, there has been some overlap there. Or 
and what I mean by technical, because what you guys are doing is extremely technical from a, a skill based perspective, but um, maybe like low, um, you know, small numbers, uh, small cliff, uh, complicated terrain, not seeing the landing area, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, again, like my base jumping career or journey has, is still early. Um, anyway, the, maybe the, the main thing that comes to mind is a jump that we did last summer where I opened an exit point um, and Espen was going to open a different one on the mountain. So we were jumping two different exits. And I jumped first um, and Espen helped me to analyze the, the jump and we were looking at it together and I decided I felt comfortable and I, I went for the jump. But I don't know, maybe I'm a bit selfish, but I only really think about myself in those situations. <laughs> it's hmm. like I, I kind of just, I, I just trust that he is going to do do what he chooses is the right thing to do. Uh, and then when I decide what I'm going to do, I, I try to take it as an individual, uh, but obviously ask for help and support and, and guidance if I need it. And of course, like if I was to see Espen do something and I felt like, well, that was maybe he shouldn't do that or, or question it, then I would always question it. But um yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I fully understand like your your question, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think this is worth repeating uh, or maybe explaining more clearly that um in my experience, and of course this is very subjective, but in my experience, being at the exit point, when it can be technical, meaning you really have to get a good start and get flying, either to clear terrain or or, or you know, make clear feature, whatever, that sitting standing side by side and making those analyzing uh analyzation of the exit point, doing my gear check doing my breathing to calm down and deregulate downregulate any sort of anxiety that I may be having that being with the love of my life can complicate that. And I don't mean that I don't trust her or I don't have any less, uh, less respect for her as a jumper because that's not the case at all. It just, it's an added feature that, creates a little bit more noise at the exit point and just enough where I think, okay, if I'm really going to be pushing the limits of my abilities on start performance and glide and things along those lines, that those, those kind of jumps are better left done without her. And again, Ellen is a fantastic wingsuit base jumper and I have, you know, all the respect and trust that she's going to do, make the right decisions and, and operate within her boundaries, her more than most people. However, that love component is uh, can get a bit noisy in my mind. And so my question was if you had experienced that as well, but it sounds like you haven't. And I think that your dynamic might be a little bit different because Espen is highly experienced in wingsuit base jumping and uh, he, and you're not. So you're, you're look, you know, he's, you can trust that he's operating within his boundaries. And when you're maybe nervous or doing something new, you know, he's there as a rock to, to, to support you or 
or your dynamic isn't like that at all and I'm just sort of putting words into your mouth no I definitely think you have a point there and that was kind of what I was thinking of when you were saying it because uh, in base jumping Espen and I are not really on an even level uh, he is very much my mentor uh, he has so much more experience than me uh, not just in base jumping but also just in the mountains like he grew up in the mountains I grew up in England like I didn't climb a mountain until I was uh, 23 24 so my experience is so much less than his in the base jumping environment um, that to have him there for me uh, it always just makes me feel more comfortable because I have someone that I trust that I can ask and get feedback from um, there is nobody else that I trust more than Espen in that environment. Um, I think that, so, so yeah, I definitely think that our dynamic is a bit different in, in that sense. And I'm not sure that, I think that if you asked him that question, he would reply very differently. And I, I can't, I, I can't say what he would say, but I think that his experience of that and, would be very different to what mine is because we we are so unbalanced in that environment yeah and that's that's honestly like part of the the confounding element um that we see in other sports uh come out when we have like romantic partners doing something and i think the clearest example is in mountaineering when both of the things that you guys are presenting are apparent in the case of somebody that's less experienced you have the more experienced person empathizing with that and then not exactly staying in their lane. And that can lead to a lot of um, critical decisions being made improperly or somebody like missing something or being inattentive at a moment that they need to because they're in somebody else's world. And then the other phenomenon is something that uh, Amber, you're kind of speaking towards where you have this incredible track record with an amazing partner. And you trust them implicitly because you have so much evidence to like draw from. Um, and yet, like if we were, you know, individuals, if you were out mountaineering with me, you wouldn't trust me at all. And that would lead you to question everything that we're doing a little bit more. And it would lead you to stay in your lane a little bit more um, so that like, you know, you would cross check because you wouldn't just assume that like I had your best interest in mind and was like watching you. Um, and so like, th that's kind of the, the issue that a lot of people take um, when they like look at doing something incredibly dangerous with the, with the romantic partner is, can we stay objective uh, during this thing? Or are we like so wrapped in each other that like objectivity is, is not even possible? Uh, it's a very good point and it's something I've actually thought quite a lot about because I mean it's one thing to say oh, I trust Espen a lot and we, he's my mentor and he's going to help me stay safe but uh, throughout the years of us jumping together he I mean he's only human I can't trust him 100% and I think in the beginning I trusted him 100% and then a few times he told me the wrong information or led me into something that maybe I shouldn't have been doing. And then I got scared. And it almost like uh, was, I guess, in, in many ways, like a breach of trust. Um, or that was how I experienced it in the beginning. Uh, later on, I realized that it was actually just really important that I 
kind of came a bit back to reality and realized that I can't trust him 100% and I have to question him. Um, there's been times where it's like, yeah, we're going to hike up this mountain. It's no worries. It's perfectly fine. Like, it's not even a big deal. And then I find myself, like, climbing on the edge of this wall. I'm like, I don't have much climbing experience. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? I should never be here. But for him, it's not a problem at all because he's been growing up there. And I think for me, like, those experiences showed me that I, I have to ask questions. I have to... Um, have to understand properly what I'm doing and not just be led into things naively um so I mean I guess it comes back to like what I was talking about earlier on with that if you just do stuff with just one person you get used to just one thing but it's important to to jump with different people and experience different stuff and and uh to go hiking with you Matt is uh something that would be really important for me to do if I ever got the opportunity because then I get the chance to learn and put myself in an environment with somebody else because Esper doesn't have all the answers yeah um and uh that can be a bit intimidating but I think it's really important and it's it's something that I I strive towards and I think in the years to come I will more and more take steps to be more independent in especially base jumping um yeah to i guess get other information and and uh, expand my knowledge beyond what Espen can offer me well while we're talking about expanding knowledge and this might be a good time to wrap up uh this podcast is all about trying to expand the knowledge base of the whole community and we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about like these three major subjects we wanted to chat with you about recovery and training and partnership. Um, is, are there anything in either one of those that uh, you feel like uh, you want to add back, like add a little bit of extra bits to uh, before we kind of close this out? I think like, as you were saying that I was like, Oh God, what am I going to say? And then I, I think the thing that is sitting with me now is that um, it's really interesting to have this conversation with you both. I learn a lot and uh, it's been a great pleasure. Um, I do have this like small amount of like discomfort in me because to a certain level, I feel like you challenge me in a way. Um, and it's, it's kind of like my, my ego, I guess, uh, popping up and being like, uh, yeah, it can be a bit intimidating to feel like you expose so much of yourself publicly and not for everybody is it the case but I think for me it's quite important that I am able to do that so I can show my cards to people and and get feedback and information and learn from it and I guess uh that's what you want to that's what you're trying to do with this podcast and i guess that i'm left here with that feeling means that you're doing a good job oh well thank you very much and uh, we really appreciate you rising to the challenge it's been uh, lovely chatting to you yeah fantastic amber and uh, i appreciate the compliment and i think if nothing else that uh, this conversation um, not only inspires me but other people to train with you because it seems like you've been there and are doing it and with the life challenges that have been thrown your way, uh, you've, uh, matured tremendously and, uh, have a lot to offer. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy for you guys. Like, uh, I tried to jump in with your last camp and it was sold out and, uh, that's incredible. 
that's uh you know this has gone from something relatively fringe to something that's now sold out and you got to plan it way in advance so congratulations on that front yeah where can we uh find you where can people find you to uh get uh, some more instruction to uh, ask you questions and uh, continue to engage with you in the sport uh well i think that uh, instagram and facebook are good places maybe instagram is the best that's uh, where i'm sharing uh, all of our events and what I'm up to and uh, I spend quite a lot of time replying to messages there so if anybody has any questions or just wants to chat or anything I'm, I'm there ready to ready to talk great we'll be sure to include all of your links in the notes cool thank you thank you Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you have any comments about what you've heard on the show or any topic suggestions for future episodes, please hit us up. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer for helping us on the project. Catch you next time and see y'all on the exit point.